Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Biff Bites. I'm your host, Jerry, joined, as always, by my co-host, Mike. How's it going, Mike? Jerry, it's going well. It's going well. I'm ready for fall uh, weather and football, college football, but overall, (laughs) it's going well, and glad to have you back. I don't know if we've had an episode since you've been back from Europe, but... Welcome back. Yeah. You were very missed. <laughs> oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed myself over across the pond, but ready to get back to work and get back to uh, the CFP grind. Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. So lately I've been uh, up to my eyeballs in bond yield, yield to maturity, yield to call. I've been rewriting some of the curriculum to... Uh, be a bit clearer for our students uh, in that department. What have uh, what have you can been kind of up to lately? Yeah, and I just want to tell you, I'm I'm thrilled with what you're doing. Um, you're 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 in a wonderful way breaking down some of the mystery that surrounds these various calculations and issues with bonds. So I've just seen a little bit of what you've done so far, but I thought, wow, this is really good, and I think the students are really gonna love it. So what I've been doing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always involved in, I'm looking at a lot of exam questions now, but um, we are excited to start rolling out uh, some brand new videos to our video library, particularly about calculations and formulas and such. So I just want to encourage the students to watch for those as they roll out. I think they'll, uh, they'll really like them, but we'd be anxious for their feedback. Oh yeah, I got to watch a couple of those, and yeah, you've been you've been doing a lot of work there. Those are great. Uh, some new ones just came out on our YouTube page, uh, Boston Institute of Finance. Uh, if you search that on YouTube, it'll get to our homepage. And yeah, there's a bunch of kind of calculator tutorial videos that are uh, really useful. I even learned a couple tips and tricks there, some shortcuts that I didn't even know. So yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And we each uh, on our staff faculty, we each have our our favorite calculator, but it's interesting. You watch someone like, Oh, I never thought about it that way. So you're right. Yeah. I've learned some stuff too. Perfect. Well, you want to get right into the meat of things and get things started with our question of the episode. Yeah. And I think this is one, right. That, um, that a student sent in to you, correct? Yeah. Students sent the, sent this in to me. I'm not sure where they got it from, but I really liked it because, uh, it's definitely an area that people tend to have trouble with and it's the kitty tax. Kitty tax was simplified a bit with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, you know, before it was a pretty convoluted system. And while it's by no means simple, it is simpler than it was before. But uh, people do still just have a little bit of trouble with it because there's a couple layers to the kitty tax that you have to go through. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to pitch this one to you, Mike, and I want to see kind of how you break it down. Okay, yeah, I think it's uh this is a great topic and I would be shocked if there isn't at least one kitty tax question on the national exam, but it is so relevant in just real life client work too. So this was a good choice again. Yeah, definitely. Uh so at only 13 years old, Melissa is a promising figure skater with dreams of Olympic competition. Uh, When she was born, her parents established a Section 2503C Miners Trust on her behalf. Melissa's parents are in the 37% marginal federal income tax bracket. The trust assets, which are now substantial, are invested conservatively in bonds and bank-issued certificates of deposit. 
in the 2019 tax year. $15,000 of income uh, from the trust is distributed to cover private figure skating coaching sessions for Melissa. Assume that Melissa has no other sources of income. How will the distribution of trust income be taxed? Will it be A, the distribution of unearned income from a trust for a minor's current enjoyment will be taxed under kitty tax rules. The amount of tax that applies to the $15,000 distribution is $1,390. Is it B, the distribution of unearned income from the trust uh, for the minor's current enjoyment will be taxed under kitty tax rules. The amount of tax that applies will be $3,204. C, the income will be taxed entirely at the fiduciary tax rates applicable to trusts. The amount of tax that applies uh, will be $3,908. Or D, the distribution of unearned income from the trust for the minor's enjoyment will be taxed under kitty tax rules. The amount of tax that applies to this distribution is $4,846. And I know I just threw a lot at our listeners right there. If you're a more visual learner like I am, uh, the same question will be in our newsletter if you want to take a look at it. Ah, good. So what do you think, Mike? What do I think? Well, here's an idea. You know, as a uh, as a hardworking CFP, we, we want to look at alternatives as well, right? So here's just an idea for these parents. Take... All of the money that is spent on lessons and ice time and training and all of that, invest it. And then when the child is, you know, Olympic age, give them the money. You know, I just think for comparison's sake, you know, yeah, you know. Um, um, Mike, you're just like some of my favorite students, you know, they're in the industry and they see these questions and it's like, these parents shouldn't be doing this. Should They should be doing something completely different. But, yeah. but I say this, you know, in fun because I um uh, I fully supported my sons. Uh, they were swimmers and and soccer players, and and uh, I fully supported that. So I'm kidding, of course. But it would be interesting math. Maybe we'll do a calculator video about that. Yes, yes, future project <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, and I think youth hockey is even worse. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, that might be a fun question to have. But yeah, so you break this down, and I think this is so important. And I think where we get lost is that separation with unearned income and earned income. Mm. My hope is our question would only deal with unearned, and and that would be my prediction too. But it's just the steps. It's those repetitive steps. So the first thing, uh, you know, for this year, we've got uh, the first 1,100 of unearned income uh, is not taxed at all. Yeah, tax-free, baby, straight into your pocket. And, And remember, too, that we're only talking about unearned income for this kitty tax thing right things like most commonly you'll see dividends things like that less common you'll see things like uh royalties you know say you have some of these like child actors who uh are receiving royalty payments for their performances that'll be unearned income um it's not you know the newspaper routes the uh you know mowing lawns things like that that would actually qualify as earned income yeah 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 so that's you know kind of the first thing and then so we just take the total um what do we have here 15,000 so um we would first subtract uh, uh 1100 from that and we don't have any tax on that and then the next 1100 is taxed at the uh, child's own rate 
typically this is also zero because unless the child is uh, is working and and is in a tax bracket, typically children don't have enough to earned income to actually get taxed on it. Good point. Really, really good point. So that's the first part. And then, so we draw the line there. And I remember doing these, you know, longhand and draw the line. So how much uh, is left then of the unearned income? And that's the part that we're going to look at uh, with kitty tax. So real quick, just to add that up. So we got the first 1100 is always tax-free. The second 1100 is usually tax-free unless the child has a job or something like that that would push them into a tax bracket. So really we're looking at nine times out of 10, the first 2200 is tax-free and we can subtract that right off the uh, $15,000 in this question. Yeah. Okay, good. So you're tracking. Um, so what's that leave us with? Uh, 12, 12, eight. Yep. $12,800 left over that will actually be taxed. Yeah. So uh, now the, the last piece is just, okay, at, at what rate? And before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it was at the parents' uh, highest marginal rate, right? Right. Now it's uh, based off of trust tax rates, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. You're right. And here's a nuance, which maybe makes it a good test question. One of the differences here is it's actually marginal rates uh, with the trust and uh, and estates income tax rates, whereas with the in the previous law it was just it was just whatever the parent's highest marginal rate was. Now you actually apply the layers of marginal tax to that amount, that 12.8 that we're talking about. So how, break that down for our students. How does, how does marginal tax rate actually work? Okay, so we're, we're starting at 12.8, yeah? And the first 2,600 of, uh, of that 12.8 is taxed at 10%. Mm-hmm. And so we could write beside there uh, $260. Now we subtract that 2,600, we're down to 10,200 left. So the next bracket uh, is 24%. And so we have in that bracket, we have $6,700. And let me give you what that, that second bracket is 26, from 2,600 to 9,300. And and so that's 6,700, the next 6,700 is taxed at 24%, big jump. So that's $1,608 added to the, to the column. And so now if we take um, that 6700 away from the 10200 we have left $3,500 uh, of unearned income to be taxed. And, and that next bracket, another big jump, 50% jump, goes to 35%. And that bracket runs from 9300 to twelve thousand seven fifty, and and so that three thousand four hundred fifty will be taxed at thirty five percent, right? Which adds another um, one thousand two hundred twenty five to the uh, to the total, and then I guess we would even have in this one what fifty more dollars yeah. that's that's taxed at thirty seven percent. But we uh, add that up, and um, we've got three thousand two hundred four dollars. Right. And now for students listening at home and thinking, oh man, kitty tax is impossible. I'm never going to get these questions on the exam. Um, it they do uh, provide you a lot of resources that help. Uh, you answer these sorts of questions on the exam, you do get the tax tables for trusts. So you'll be able to see the dollar amounts and the percentages that they're taxed at. So when you're solving these types of questions on the exam, I recommend students draw a little pyramid. 
and at the base you have the first eleven hundred dollars that's tax free. Then the next level is another eleven hundred dollars that is also typically tax free, but it's you know quotation the uh, child's tax rate. And then the next level above that is the first level of the trust tax amounts, and you just work your way up this pyramid. Uh, filling in the dollar amounts and how much each one's taxed. And then at the end of it all, you just go down the side and add up the totals, and that gives you your total tax amount. Excellent. Yeah, so anytime they run into a practice question between now and the exam, I would I would do that. Draw your little chart and do it, and then you can even visualize that when it comes uh, test time. But this is another easy points if you'll just get comfortable and practice the steps. Yep. And it's really the the pyramid is a great visualization tool to help you, uh, you know, keep track of these different levels as you go up. The tax amount gets higher and higher. Yes, and the um, I, I mean, I really, if I had to bet what what one would see on the exam, it would be all unearned income. But don't panic if you happen to see where they do have the paper out where they're earning five thousand a year or, or whatever. That what we just did always determines how much is going to be taxed of the unearned income at the estate and trust rate. After that, you can do more of a regular tax calculation, um, which just adds really uh, a, another step to the process. Definitely. Uh, so pulling it all together, we get the correct answer of the distribution of unearned income from a trust for a minor's current enjoyment will be taxed under Kitty Tax rules, and that amount is going to be $3,204 when we add it all up. There you go, and and that's what I would predict you're going to do on the exam, so it was a pretty good question choice. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, Kitty Tax, uh, lots of pieces, but not all that complicated. You just got to stack them in the right order, and you're good to go. Absolutely. All right, Mike, we got a topic that is on a lot of people's minds, uh, a lot of information, and I would say misinformation flying around out there, uh, and it is the new fiduciary rule changes that are going into effect for the November CFP exam. Yeah, we've heard a lot about this for a long time, and uh, we will continue to well into implementation, which I think is what, October of, of 2019? Yeah, they kept moving it back. They announced this, I want to say, what, a year and a half to two years ago? And yeah. uh, a bunch of the firms pushed back, so they delayed it, and there was a lot of hemming and hawing, and now the CFP board decided, you know, it's going into effect. Uh, they did uh, delay it one more time where uh, it's going into effect uh, October 1st, but it's not going to be enforced until 2020, um, but it will still be tested on, on in the November 2019 exam, even though it's not going to be enforced until next year. That is uh, my understanding as well. And I actually called CFP board um, this week just to absolutely confirm that. And they said, Yes. And, and then I kind of give them a hard time and say, well, why don't you send something out <laughs> or post it on your website or something? It's like, but we we thought they, you know, that's kind of common sense, isn't it? And I said, well, I don't know. But it would be so easy to say, by the way, 
it will be tested, but it's not going to be enforced until 2020. So I'd be shocked if they took my advice to post something, but yay, you can try. <laughs> the person you were talking to was just like, I just, I just work here, buddy. <laughs> That's right. Hey man, don't hassle me. I, this isn't my code. Come on. <laughs> definitely. So, uh, I mean, we definitely recommend, uh, all students studying for the November exam, uh, you know, go to the CFP board website, get the copy of the ethics handbook, read that cover to cover several times to get ready for the exam. Um, can't overstate that enough. These are typically the questions that are freebies. So long as you put in the work and actually, you know, read the employee handbook, basically. Yeah, good, good advice. And multiple times uh, reading it. The good news piece from a testing standpoint is this new code and standards from a content volume is far smaller than the previous one. So there's far few pages to have to study as a, as a testing item. Yeah, definitely. So uh, really good uh, time efficiency with it now compared to the old handbook, which was kind of a monster as far as, uh, you know, all the rules and regulations in it. Yeah, they really produced a much more readable uh, document this time. So, you know, I applaud them uh, for that. But I think that the main advice here is folks don't panic. You've got this. You're, yes. You know, there's you'll you'll see when you get in here that there's things that have always been there. And um, and then just focus on some of the the major changes that that happened. Definitely. Uh, and to help people out. The CFP board do, did put out a uh, dozen case studies uh, featuring questions that will be affected by the fiduciary rule changes. And I figured we could just run through, uh, you know, one or two of these uh, just to kind of give them a, give them a shot, see what we think. And I'm sure we'll be coming back uh, to more of them uh, in, in future episodes. Yeah. And this um, the early ones of these case studies kind of focus on that. Uh, fiduciary duty. And that's, I would guess, would be the most heavily uh, tested piece uh, of this. And so uh, that in their description, fiduciary duty is three different duties, duty of loyalty, duty of care, and duty to follow client instructions. And that's where these case studies uh, put a focus. And I think it's perfect for the exam because I really believe if this makes it into the exam in November, I think the question will look like one of these case studies. Yes, definitely. So let's dive into this first case study here. Uh, Sarah, a CFP professional, is engaged by Betty, who is retiring soon, to provide financial advice. Betty has most of her retirement funds invested in her employer's 401k plan. Sarah does not obtain any information about the 401k plan because she assumes that there are more investment options available in an individual retirement account, an IRA, uh, than in Betty's 401k plan. Based on this, Sarah believes Petty, Betty's portfolio would be better off in an IRA. Sarah properly discloses her material conflicts of interest to Betty. Sarah then recommends that Betty take a distribution from her 401k and roll the assets into an IRA, which Sarah would manage. Uh, Sarah intends to analyze and recommend an investment strategy for the IRA after the funds have been distributed to the IRA. Did Sarah satisfy her fiduciary duty? Uh, I really like this question, Mike, because this 
happens all the time. You know, when I was an advisor working in, in the industry, you know, rollovers were uh, the bread and the butter for most uh, advisors. You know, a lot of new clients would come in uh, from 401k rollovers and setting up IRAs that, that you would manage. So I feel this is a situation people are going to run into a lot. Yeah, universally uh, applicable here. And and I'm going to say instinctively, uh, I, I bet Sarah's right, but... <laughs> Um, where, where if a complaint ever ensued about this, uh, and when you, when you get into these case studies, they write really long explanations. So take the time to read through those as you study the 12 cases, but really where Sarah opened herself up for, uh, you know, not fulfilling this duty is that she just didn't gather up enough information. She didn't analyze the existing situation enough. She just kind of very quickly went to that rollover and that would fail. That would fail, uh, the, the fiduciary duty that she has. And I think it's the duty of care was the one that they referenced in this one, but the short answer is just, she just rushed it and she didn't, she didn't follow those steps. Yeah, the red flag for me in this question when I read it was Sarah assumes. Whenever you see a financial advisor assuming something, that should set off alarm bells in your head. Yeah, good point. Very, very good point. So again, study it intensely when you get into this, but just know if we're rushing and we're making assumptions, yep, we may be setting ourselves up. Yeah. And that's important because, I mean, this is a situation that happens every single day. I mean, you you will research 401k plans and, you know, 99% of the time, Sarah would be right. You know, Sarah, most 401k plans are fairly restrictive in their options and IRAs give you full freedom. So 99% of the time, uh, you know, Sarah would be right. But there are those corner cases where Sarah would be wrong. You know, the 401k could offer like a brokerage link option where you can have any investment Mm -hmm. option. Or more importantly, uh, Betty could have uh, employer stock options or, you know, and other investment vehicles in that 401k that, you know, she could end up uh, surrendering if she rolls it over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so I like I like this one uh, about retirement, because after all, remember when the DOL first started going down this path for uh, fiduciary standard, it it was about retirement. That's where this all started a few years ago. So I think that makes it great. Uh, I mean, it's so universally um, applicable, like like you said, but then um, exam, you know, it's a good exam question about retirement. Definitely. Uh, let's do one more quickly before we move on to our next topic. Okay. Uh, so Bruce, a CFP professional, is a representative of XYZ Advisors, not a real company, <laughs> a registered investment advisor. XYZ does not permit its investment advisor representatives to charge a fee for managing assets in a 401k plan. Bruce is engaged by Heather, who is retiring, to provide financial planning. After obtaining information about and understanding Heather's personal and financial circumstances, Bruce helps Heather develop a goal of having adequate income during her retirement. Bruce analyzes Heather's existing account in the 401k plan and the plan's investment options, fees and expenses, services, and other features. All right, good job, Bruce, so far. He did put in the legwork. Uh, Bruce concludes that the management fees Heather will pay if she rolls over the assets into an individual retirement account uh, will be higher than if she leaves the assets in her account in the 401k plan. Nevertheless, based on his review of Heather's circumstances and the analysis of the relevant factors, 
Bruce determines that such a rollover is in Heather's best interest. Bruce presents that recommendation to Heather and tells Heather that he would receive an ongoing fee for managing the assets in the IRA. Bruce does not tell Heather that she would not have to pay Bruce a fee if she continues to invest her assets in the account of the 401k plan, as he would not be advising on those assets. Question, with respect to Bruce's duty to disclose conflicts of interest, uh, which of the following is the best response? Uh, Either A, Bruce has no material conflict because Heather understands that Bruce will not be paid for his services. B, Bruce satisfied his disclosure obligation when he disclosed his fee for managing the IRA. C, Bruce did not fully disclose to Heather the material conflict of interest uh, that his recommendation presented, or D, since Bruce sincerely believes that his recommendation was in Heather's best interest, he was excused from making full disclosure to Heather. What do you think, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) I I think the best thing here would be let's hope the marriage lasts. That's probably the greatest... (laughs) the greatest weakness to getting a complaint ever on this, but, um, you know, being asked by the fiance to, uh, you know, to get into this, I actually, I actually don't like this much, this question, but I think it, it's, it serves a good, uh, illustration. Um, I mean, I get the whole thing that if she left it here, there's no fee and he's going to get a fee. He did disclose he gets a fee, but this one to me, Jerry is almost like, are you sure you want to do this? You yeah. probably really don't want to do this, do you? <laughs> this, yeah, this is this is a tricky one. It really is because Bruce came really, really close, and it's not that he's seems to be intentionally hiding anything from Heather. He's disclosing the fees. He put in the legwork. He did the research. Uh, you know, he's making the recommendation of his best interest. He's not just chasing a commission or anything like that. Uh, really what it's coming down to is, you know, the things left unsaid or not even unsaid, but more just, you know, maybe just a miscommunication in that Bruce assumes that Heather knows these things so he doesn't bother bringing it up. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a tough one um, and to draw the line on. But I think it's a good illustration that 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 for the exam, if if you really don't know, if you really are having a hard time sizing it up, I would recommend erring on the side of more protection for the client rather than less protection for for the client. And this was one of those, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'll go along with that. But man, I think it was pretty, pretty on. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Always uh, lean towards the very conservative side when you're unsure about a question. Yeah, yeah, that's a good lesson. But again, you know, there's more of these and uh, and some good tidbits to pick up, um, you know, study all 12. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the correct answer on that, by the way, was C. Bruce did not fully disclose to Heather the material conflict of interest that his recommendation presented, uh, specifically because he did not disclose that uh, he would not be collecting a fee uh, by leaving it in the 401k. Even though he did disclose that she would pay more of a fee by rolling it over to the IRA, uh, just the fact that he didn't spell it out that there would be no fee for it in the 401k yeah. since he would not be advising on it, uh, uh, you know, makes it fall under the not fully disclosure. Yeah, and and on my copy, I put an asterisk on that one in protest. You know, <laughs> that I'm, I'm not in yeah. full agreement on this CSB yeah. board. 
it's kind of like you you have a plumber come over to do an inspection <laughs> and the plumber gives you a quote and you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to go with with you. And then the plumber is in trouble because he didn't disclose that you won't be paying him for not actually doing the job. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and there's a few more cases like this in that lineup. So, um, you know, there's others I disagreed with somewhat. Um, and you may do the same listeners as you go through there. But just remember, you're just preparing. How do I take apart these things and get to the right answer? Right. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about a bit on the last episode, and it's separating real world from test world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something else. Just, uh, again, the stuff you're working on, Jerry, that breaks down uh, real world and test world. That's it's just really valuable stuff that, that you've been working on lately in those regards. All right, Mike, I want to wrap up the episode with something that's uh, relevant for just about everyone, Uh, you know, because I would say the vast, vast majority of Americans uh, will come across this at one point in their life. And it is retirement plans and the alphabet soup of all of those different options out there. How do you keep them straight? <laughs> 401k, IRA, SEP, EI, EIO. I mean, that's what it, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got 401ks, 403 bs yeah. 457 plans, SAP simples. By the way, even though it's called a simple, a simple plan is never simple. <laughs> it's not simple, and there's more than one. <laughs> exactly. So, how do people keep this straight? This is a question I get from students all the time. Uh, especially students uh, making a career change, uh, students who have not been in the industry. Uh, Really, how most people in the industry get these things straight is they're just exposed to them day in and day out just because it's such a large part of uh, clients' day-to-day investment activities. Uh, But even... You know, professionals who have been in the industry for years and years and years, you know, some of the more obscure plans they are not comfortable with at all. Sure. And understandably so. And this is an area where uh, in the in the first episode uh, of Biff Bites, you and I heavily promoted the use of handwritten flashcards. This is a good place to use handwritten flashcards for these these different plans and start getting the nuances down to bullet points. Right. Uh, And the way I start organizing those uh, for when I make my flashcards is I make two piles and I have one pile be my personal retirement plans. And those are, you know, IRA, uh, Roth IRA. Uh, There are a couple kind of ones that blur the lines a bit, but usually fall under the individual side. Things like Kios um, and individual 401k plans. Um, You know, these are the plans that an individual sets up, you know, you take the time, you open an account at a brokerage firm, you fill out the paperwork, you set it up for yourself. And then my second pile is employer sponsored plans. Mm -hmm. And these are the types of accounts that you can only get through a company. And these are 401ks, 403bs, 457s. Um, The rule of thumb I've noticed is employer plans will always have the ones with numbers in them. Every single retirement plan that has a number in it is a employer-sponsored plan. There aren't any individual retirement plans that have numbers involved in their title. Good point. Good point. I've never looked at it that way, but you're absolutely right. And of course, those numbers are the corresponding section of the Internal Revenue Code that speaks to that particular kind of plan. 
Yep, exactly. So whenever you see a number in a plan uh, title, that is your immediate red flag. Okay, this is a employer-sponsored plan. has to be set up by a company for its employees. Good deal. Um, so, yeah, I make these two piles, and that's really the first level of just distinction between them. Okay, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and I, I further segment that, and starting with the employer-sponsored side, and, and I break that down to quality qualified plan. And under that, it's either a pension or it's a profit sharing. Those are the only two types of qualified plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, taking a quick step back just to that qualified plan, can you can you just give a quick breakdown for our listeners? Qualified versus non-qualified. Qualified means that they they qualify under the uh, the revenue code and rules and 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 with ERISA primarily so that we have an employer deduction for the contributions made to the plan and we have a plan that's not currently taxable uh, to the participant. That's the big umbrella benefit of being qualified. Whereas non-qualified plans, where we might get into some permissible uh, discrimination. Um, they do not meet all of the regulatory requirements to be called a qualified plan, and they tend to have more flexibility. And then there's a middle group, really, that are these tax-advantaged plans, like a 403B is not technically a qualified plan, but it's also not something like um, top hat deferred compensation. Right, exactly. So on the employer side, you break it down further, qualified versus non-qualified. Yes, and that's where the overlap of the rules come in, uh, in knowing that there are certain rules that apply to all qualified plans. For instance, the covered compensation limit. Um, it's $280,000 in 2019, and it doesn't matter what kind of qualified plan you're in. That's the most income that can be considered in any type of benefit formula. Right. And, uh, and that's important because I feel this is really where uh, we start to lose students in their understanding is keeping all the limits straight, all the contribution limits, all the... Uh, you know, tax advantage limits uh, as far as, you know, how much you can contribute and have it be tax deductible. Um, this is really where it all starts to kind of spin in people's heads. Yes, ab absolutely. And and so you just, and again, I'm visualizing these as bullet points on a, on a flash card. So we get into uh, pensions. Pensions are really all about employer funding. There are no individual participant accounts. The employer assumes the investment uh, risk. Um, they're the most expensive plans because they have the most guarantees. Contrasted to defined contribution plans, there are defined contribution pensions and profit sharings. Most defined contribution are profit sharing, but they all play by the same rules. There's individual participant accounts subject to an annual additions limit of 56000 That applies to all of those deferred um, defined contribution plans. Definitely. And honestly, there isn't really a magic bullet for that side of uh, the retirement chart we're trying to draw here. You know, the employer plans are complicated. There's lots of rules. Um, some rules overlap between plans. Other plans have their own specific rules. You know, there really isn't a magic bullet for it other than just putting in the work, making those flashcards and making the distinction and practicing those distinctions. Yes, yes, that's great advice. And, and small bites, small steps. Master one of them first. Yeah. And then move on to, to another one. 
yeah, you know, start with something like a 401k. Get really, really comfortable with 401k. I recommend 401k because it's the most popular plan that you're most likely going to run into. So, you know, start with the most popular first and then work your way down. You know, go into 403b plans, go into 457 plans. And as you go, kind of just take mental notes of the of the similarities and differences between them. Yes. And in the um, that's as you lay those down one by one, they have the same areas of comparison, let's say, or objectives we're trying to satisfy for the employer sponsor. But you start seeing the nuances. Um, do you remember a kid's a kid's song like one of these is not like the other one. One of these is not <laughs> yes. like the other. One. <laughs> that's what you start looking at in these plans like, OK, all of these defined contribution plans have a 56,000 edition uh, annual additions limit. But what makes them different? Well, it might be in the catch up provision for that particular plan. It might be um, whether the employer contributes or not. It might be investing. So you just start mastering those one by one and then you start to really feel what makes them different, which I think is what makes the good test question. Definitely. Uh, so that is the employer side of the uh, retirement fa- uh, plan family tree. Uh, let's go over to the to the other branch we talked about towards the beginning, the individual retirement branch. Um, I feel what really sets the individual retirement plans apart, what where the first main segment is, is. Uh, the tax deferred versus non tax deferred plans. Yeah, the um, that tends to be driven a lot by uh, who all do they want to benefit uh, right. in the plan, and then that's usually linked to is there is it tax deferred or not, or when is their constructive receipt? That's a big term in the non qualified side. Right. So first, the two most popular individual retirement plans, you know, probably something all of our listeners have at least come across is uh, Roth versus traditional IRA. Those are the the heavy hitters of the individual retirement plan world. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, we're just matching up timelines and objectives uh, and, and numbers with the client on whether we would go traditional or Roth. And so that goes back to the active participant side of things and employer sponsored to determine whether we have deductible contributions to a traditional uh, plan uh, to a traditional IRA uh, or not. That's kind of a first step. Right, right. You know, I would say at its most basic uh, elemental level, uh, the way I separate them is Roth accounts are taxed now traditional accounts, uh, traditional IRAs, that is, are taxed later. That is, I feel, the most basic distinction between them. Yes, indeed. And and then if, from a testing perspective, you read the full question, you read the story and say, well, what are they describing here? You, you know, a common thought might be that, well, we'll be in a lower tax bracket when we retire. But, you know, is that what the story is saying? Can we really uh, make that assumption before we pick the Roth versus the traditional. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, once again, it comes down to making some flashcards with some key bullet points between Roths and uh, traditional IRAs and keeping them straight that way. Um, they they are a bit friendlier because they don't have nearly as many regulations as the uh, employer-sponsored plans, but there are some uh, kind of unique differences between them, especially when you get into uh, you know, tax savings and taxation at withdrawal. Yes. And, and that, I mean, even thinking about the, the cases here that we, we highlighted, grabbing all that f- full information, doing the, the research and gathering the data before we make the recommendation 
Um, and that, that was the problem in that first case study. Uh, and then from there, we have kind of this little subsection of retirement plans that kind of blurs the lines between individual and employer. And it's these are really the plans that are intended for self-employed individuals or people who own small businesses that only have a couple companies. And these would be like your Kios, your SEPs, and some would argue simple. I feel simple really falls more under the employer uh, sponsor plan since it there isn't really an individual option with the simple, but definitely the Kio and SEP really blur the lines because it falls under a lot of the regulations of the employer plans, but they are intended for either an individual self-employed or maybe someone with, you know, one or two employees, real small operation. Yeah, and that simplicity is the biggest reason they get adopted, really, um, particularly as a first step in the in the retirement plan arena. Um, for instance, the SEP is the only one of the plans that can be established and funded as late as the due date for the tax return, including extensions, everything, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything else would need to have been set up before the end of the year. Yep. I view the SEP as kind of the panic button option where your accountant's <laughs> like, hey, you uh, you should put some money in a retirement account to get this tax break. And like, oh, okay, open yeah. up a SEP right here. Let's let's make the contribution and be done. <laughs> Yeah, and that and that simplicity. I mean, you can just uh, there's a form you fill out for it to adopt it, but that simplicity comes with well. Then if I have employees, uh, I'm gonna have to contribute for them, and they're immediately 100% vested. So there's trade offs for this simplicity. Yes, and you'll often find that with all the plans. Um, IRS is very good at keeping a, a strict balance with these types of plans, and you'll see a lot of those trade-offs. You know, usually a benefit comes with, uh, you know, a con in another area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and again, that's that's great flashcard material. What's the best thing about this? What's the worst thing about this? What would a client be seeking for this to perhaps be the answer? Or what would they be avoiding for this to possibly not be the right recommendation? Oh, yes. Yeah, there are. And that really does uh, come up a lot with clients because of the complexity of the rules and the overlapping rules. Uh, there are still a few loopholes out there. Uh, we won't really get too much into them on this episode, but... Uh, if you have uh, someone who really knows retirement regulations and IRS regulations uh, and is very comfortable with them, uh, there's definitely some some steps you can take to really maximize those contributions and get the most out of these plans. Yep. And there again, that comes right back to this. Let's do comprehensive and thorough gathering of information to really be able to, to give the right advice. Yeah, I would make flashcards for each uh, plan. I would also sketch out this kind of family tree of retirement plans that we've uh, we've been mentioning, uh, you know, start at the top at the trunk and it's just retirement plans in general splits off into two branches of individual versus company and then from there all the little split offs and uh, diversions that the the various plans have in their own unique direction mm -hmm. yeah and then um, students will find themselves visualizing that uh, on exam day definitely definitely uh, and then uh, we won't get too much into it today because we're starting to run out of time but uh, also I would work on 
uh, rollovers. Which plans can be merged with other plans? What money can be rolled over from one plan to another? Yes, and and the difference between a traditional rollover, I guess is what I call them, versus a direct transfer, and which ones must there be mandatory withholding? Um, those that's just again universally applicable and also highly testable for CFP. Definitely, hundred uh, percent. So yeah, lots of uh, content in that area. Uh, no real magic bullet other than putting in the legwork and you know practicing them. Absolutely, hundred percent agree, Jerry. Well, Mike, we covered a whole lot today, and we got more on the horizon. I'm already looking forward to our next episode, but, you know, if people want more right now, they just can't get enough. Uh, What are kind of the uh, things we got out there for students who are looking for some more information? Yeah, that's, I hope that's what happens with this, Jerry, that we, you know, maybe intrigue some folks that they want to know more, and, and we'll get a hold of us. We'll write in and ask for more explanation or conversation about these topics or uh, or, or like today um, recommend something that you'd like for us to to toss around a little bit our kitty tax discussion came straight from a student question that came in so uh, please do that and then keep watching on on the website and uh, in email because we are really starting to crank out new and exciting materials and reference resources so stay in in contact with us definitely Uh, we got the newsletter uh, we have all the YouTube videos uh, we have lots of other uh, you know tips and tricks that come out uh, that we have uh, you know, resources I'm putting together right now, actually a uh, kind of a breakdown of all the different investment formulas and really putting it into context as far as, you know, how you use them in the real world. Instead of it just being this abstract formula that we teach you how to do and you know how to do it, but you don't really know what it's used for. Uh, I'm trying to kind of paint the picture to how you can use this in real life uh, to, you know, even choose your own personal investments using these formulas. Yeah, I love that. I saw the uh, first several that you did and, and and, and again, I like how you're breaking it down. Like, you know, what's the deal with this? And why is this important? Um, how would you use it? I, th- I think it's going to be an incredibly popular. I don't know. Are we going to call it a cheat sheet or what would we call it? I just call it really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll brainstorm some names for it. But yeah, keep an eye out for that. That should be coming out soon. And, you know, if you have ideas for other things that you think might help you, definitely let us know. We're always looking for, you know, new material that we can put together for you guys. Yeah, we'd love it. Awesome. Well, I think that does it for today, Mike. I will see you next time and hope you have a great day. Thanks, Jerry. You too. Thanks for everything you do to to help our students just every single day on the front line. Oh, you too, Mike. You too.